0: it's really our job as members of this campus community to make sure that we are all accountable to each other.
1: What can we do to be a better ally as BU students and as a BU community? Each group in the BU community felt that we could make some actionable and tangible steps to improve uh, that culture at Boston University. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University, delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral
0: studies. Hi everyone, thank you so much for being with us today in our episode on intersectionality in higher education. My name is Khadija el karfi And my name is Kilani Kile-Franco. So Ilana, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at BU?
2: I'm Alana. I am the Director of Programs
3: um, for BU Diversity and Inclusion. I'm Paula Austin. I'm in the History Department and in the African American Studies Program, and I do work on the early 20th century. um, My book, Coming of Age in Jim Crow, D.C., is about uh, young Black people, poor and working class young Black people in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s. So I do some childhood studies work, um, urban history, interiority, uh, a kind of combination of social and intellectual history. What
1: parts of your work do you think relate to this topic of intersectionality?
3: So first I think I should probably define intersectionality a little bit just for my, for sort of ourselves and, um, and sort of the way that I think about it and use it in my research and also use it in my teaching. Um, And so I sort of think about uh, intersectionality more as an analytic, um, a tool of analysis, uh, a sort of a way of understanding uh, social inequality, social inequity, and um, sort of thinking about the axes uh, um, at which things like, you know, race, class, gender, gender identity, uh, sexuality ability age um, uh, kind of the axes at which all of those um, uh, influence uh, the experiences um, and the the kind of things that individuals but also groups of people face um, and how they're impacted by uh, discriminatory practices and uh, and policies so in thinking about the research that I just uh, published, which was about young people in uh, Washington, D.C., who are um, experiencing the impacts of multiple forms of, um, of inequality and discrimination. There's racial segregation and racial violence, but there's also lack of uh, access to traditional politics, partly because of their age, but also because they're in Washington, D.C., where essentially nobody has voting rights. Um, and so there's an age piece, there's a, a gender and gender identity piece, and so there are all of these elements through which they're experiencing discrimination in a particular place at a particular time.
2: In my role, I think about and strategize how to help build capacity around diversity, equity, and inclusion um, within the BU community, and so I you know, do that through um, a speaker series that I run um, that helps Um, think about and folks to reflect on different topical areas of diversity. Um, I run an inclusion grant process um, that provides grant funding, small amounts of grant funding to um, individuals, departments, um, groups that have ideas um, that help, you know, better be you around diversity and inclusion and help sort of build Um, a better BU community relative to different identities and experiences. And then I do a lot of collaborating with um, academic schools and colleges and departments to help um, think about diversity um, in new and interesting ways to um, better their programming, think about how to be more inclusive and the types of programs that they put on. Um, So so that's a little bit about what I do. um, did my doctorate at Boston College, um, and I finished in 2017, which um, feels like some long ago, I guess it is. Um, and I looked at, I did it in higher education, and I looked at um, the study of how Black women um, perform race and gender on social media and how it affected their lived experiences at predominantly white institutions. I looked at three um, in the Northeast.
0: That's awesome. And I know that you just mentioned that you uh, send emails to the entire campuses at BU and I personally follow your newsletter. So I always get, you know, information about events that your office is organizing. Um, So I was wondering if you could maybe tell our listeners, what are the ways that they can make sure to know what's happening on campus and what events you're planning?
2: Yes, thank you. This is a great deal. We have a brand new, sparkling new website. (laughs) So it's bu.edu slash diversity. Um, so I would say that that's the first place to go to learn about our mission our strategy um, we have event archives so um, any of the events that we put on um, in the past couple of years there on our events archives um, we tend to especially now in the virtual landscape that we're in we record our, all of our events we caption our events and so um, folks can access those events through our event archives um, we have an events page where all of our um, current and upcoming events um, are located and then the the website is actually pretty amazing because you can learn more about what we do, um, there are different resources available. We have a crowdsourcing guide that's on there that I think is pretty wonderful for folks that are new to Boston or just want to, you know, dabble in different neighborhoods and experiences. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for a new place of worship or you're looking to, um, when we are able to again safely go to restaurants, um, that list has a wide variety of options with reviews on sort of why folks have picked this as an interesting place to go, um, what is what is important about um, the choice. So I think just perusing through our website just in general I think is is I think can be really helpful but um, you can also find out a lot about the events that are going on.
0: So um, I feel like as of lately and with the George Floyd and everything that has happened this summer and with the pandemic, here at BU, we've been having a lot of conversations about how to make our classrooms or our community you know, an inclusive one and how to make sure that everyone feels like they're welcomed and they're at home. So from your research and from the work you've been doing, how do you think we should, as educators, as students, as staff members, how should we address intersectional identities and how do we make sure that like, we're supporting our students?
3: the important thing about intersectionality as an analytical tool is that it helps us to understand the um, impact of uh, discriminatory practices and policies on racialized, minoritized, underrepresented people who are also people that have kind of multiple identities. And so in this case, right, the institution that has created the space in which uh, students, but I think also faculty, staff, etc., are experiencing exclusion or lack of belonging or microaggressions or macroaggressions in some cases. Um, that institution is the uh, is the academy, and I think this is happening at an you know in a deeply slow pace. And I sort of speak as a, a, a someone trained as a historian. Um, But I think the, you know, if we look back to the student movements of the late 1960s to essentially expand, um, not just curricula at the university level, but also to shift the climate and the culture um, of universities to, to not only be more inclusive of actual you know, people who had historically not been included in the, in the academy, but also ways of knowing epistemologies, um, kind of intellectual approaches, uh, different kinds of knowledge production. I mean, that, um, that was kind of a, the beginning of an interrogation into all of the disciplinary formations that, that are housed at a university. Um, and it's through those disciplinary formations, right, that we all come into it as faculty and students and then have the experiences of feeling like we don't belong there and i think part of that is about the ways in which disciplinary formations but also the university writ large as as an institution it's very slow to make the kinds of changes that really expand the possibilities for to include people who have historically not been included in the in the university and i think you know, the university, the academy was sort of not made for many of us. Um, It was not made with any, with many of us in mind and, um, and it was not, you know, necessarily made for us. So I think the kind of pushing institutions to, you know, to deal with diversity, equity and inclusion in particular ways that are not just about kind of the rhetoric around it, or even sort of the optics around it, but really in terms of policies and practices and culture and climate, I think that's a deeply slow process. I think that we
2: we have to be better at naming the importance of intersectional identities beyond numbers. So I think we name it around, look, our department, our institution, we have X of this, we have Y of this, and we sort of pat ourselves on the back um, that we've done a good job. Or we say, we don't have, wow, what do we do? We gotta get more. So so we, we sort of only look at it from the lens of the numbers and how the numbers sort of populate into um, a, a department or an area. And I think that we really have to go beyond that and think about the experience and think about and really dismantle the systems that are in our departments and our areas that are so traditional and so rooted and so structured um, that they just naturally create systems of inequity. I think we have to talk more about that academia is a environment that has been rooted and structured for some <laughs> and not for others um, and that even when we engage the pipeline with getting folks that look differently if we don't change the system or the structure I think I've you know there's been a lot of conversation in in the circles that I'm in about, in academia, specifically with faculty, the focus on service, the focus on teaching, and sort of the the tenure track journey, right? Um, we need to talk more about within the tenure track journey the emotional labor that faculty of color take on, the emotional labor that grad students of color take on, who are take who have a teaching load, who are researching but then also wanna find connections with the undergrads that look like them in that department and help support them, right? And they'll get paid for that, right? But, but they still and are still expected to sort of keep up the work and the support of all of the other um, facets of um, their responsibilities. So that emotional labor can't be quantified, but it is so important and it is so critical to someone's experience um, and I think we're just now talking about that, but we gotta do more than talk about it, right? Like we gotta find ways to either add that into how your faculty chair can write a recommendation for you as a PhD student and talk about that as a quantifiable experience. How, when you go into interviews, you, you can be prepped to talk about those experiences in a way that committees see value. Um, If you're looking to um, go into teaching or even if you're looking to go into industry of some sort, like how do you quantify and provide value? So the system has to recognize it as a a real and true um, component of the work. And then the individual has to be able to speak about it in a way that feels um, like they're living up to or speaking to a a really notable experience. So I think it's I think what needs to happen now is we got to really unpack the system Um, and really sort of question the system in a way of who's benefiting from what we know to be the traditional ways, um, the traditional values that we have. And I think that grad students, PhD students have to find ways to use their voice to talk about all of the things on their plate um, and find opportunities to coalesce together to say, I've got all these things on your plate. What have you got on your plate? Okay, let's talk about this. And then how do we sort of organize in a way to bring this to our chair and say, we all have these extra things on our plate. What do we do with this? Sort of, this is a running sort of experience that students are having, but nobody's talking about it. Those
1: are all great points. And I've always been curious. Why we seem to not be able to matriculate as many people of color or individuals who identify as a marginalized group or or individual um, at BU, especially on the medical campus, despite the numbers of individuals that might be invited for an interview, right? They're just falling off. So so far, I found research showing that if you identify an environment where there is a lack of diversity. In some way, shape, or form, it can be perceived as a somewhat hostile environment. You might just feel like you don't have your own community. You may not feel like there are resources or like you have your people, right? How are they going to support you when you're wading into these uncharted territories? So what can you say that, I mean, do you have any advice? Because at this point, I mean, it feels like we're swimming upstream.
2: Yeah, I think um, there are a couple of things that come to mind. Um, as we talk about that, um, I feel like I keep giving a plug for our website, but I'm gonna plug our website again because um one of the things that I think is important about our new iteration of our website is it has profiles, stories, it has that crowdsourcing guide, and the reason that those things were important to provide on our site were that when an individual is entertaining going to graduate school, taking a job at an institution. One of the first things you do is you you go to the website, right? And you may go to the department's website. You want to sort of see if you can see any physical representations of the makeup of the department. You, you try to sort of suss out as much as you can. Our hope is also that folks will find our way and, and, and um, committees and, and departments will encourage folks to find our way to our site for some profiles for that guide. Um, and just some opportunities to sort of name what different experiences look like, um, different identities um, that are represented on our campus. So, so I think that there's that sort of piece that is what's out there that a a a person that's not within the community can interface with that gives that tells a story around who you are and sort of the values that you have. I think the second piece to what you were talking about lends itself to I was thinking about um, as you were talking that when I did my master's I went to Indiana University so one thing a few things about me Um, I am from New York City I am from the Bronx I'm an inner city kid through and through um grew up in communities that um, pretty much were black and brown. Um, I went to college um, at Brandeis, um, but for the most part have primarily always been in, in environments and situations that were at least diverse or um, primarily people that looked like me. And and this, And so I decided to apply to graduate school Um, my senior year of college, and and one of the schools I looked at was Indiana University. It has a really strong higher ed program, and this required me to fly out there and never been to the Midwest, sort of had my own preconceived understanding of the Midwest and sort of who occupies um, the Midwest, and I ended up going to Indiana, and the reason that I did wasn't because I saw a lot of people that looked like me Actually, I I didn't see a lot of people in the program faculty that looked like me, but what I did experience were people that didn't look like me who had language and capacity to talk about how I would experience the department, the program as a non-majority person. So I think that what's important sometimes, I don't want to discredit the importance of having folks that look like you, folks that have experiences similar to you in a department. I think that is so incredibly important. But the majority of folks also have to do the work and have the language and have the tools to interface with students to provide support. Because if we're just resting on the brown folks, the non-straight folks, the queer folks to do that, we're, we're sort of reinforcing a dynamic of putting labor on the oppressed to fix a system that they didn't create, right? So th- the beauty of my, and, and one of my very best mentors till today is a woman, um, she's the program chair at IU for the higher ed program. She is a white queer woman, and she, but she just knew that mine was going to be a different experience and she didn't sugarcoat that. But she named that I would have her, I would have my supervisor in my assistantship, like I had a community that would never lay claim to understand exactly what I was experiencing, but would create space and support to listen and to shift where they could, the program and system and policies to make it such that others after me would still come, right? And I think that there's this other piece in this last part of this that I'll talk about is someone has to be the first. And that is always, and in my instance, I wasn't the first, there were a few before me, but there was usually always one, one or two. It wasn't like there were like a, a sort of large arsenal of students of color. But what started to happen after I got into the program was I got comfortable. I found space in leadership opportunities and so we started to really think about, well, how do we shift? How do we market? How do we engage with different areas of the country with different programs, um, undergraduate programs in ways that would leverage that more folks would come? And, and how do we continue to build the capacity of our majority supervi- assistance to supervisors and faculty to still be doing the work of understanding experiences of various identities and supporting. So I think that it has to be sort of a a two to three pronged approach. Um, And we have to be really nimble and consistently reflective and creative about what we're doing and how we're doing it.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you for, you know, sharing that personal experience of yours. And I think that kind of like made me realize that when I came to BU, I did not come to BU because I found people that looked like me or like had the same experiences as me. I'm the only um, North African student or like Arab student in my department or any department that I know at BU. I actually don't know anyone that is from the same region that I am. But the reason I came to BU was because um, the chair and the department offered me the financial resources to be able to pursue my PhD.
3: When you look at BU, where would you say we're at now? As a relatively new person, I mean, I got here in the fall of 2019, so I've really only been at BU for a year, Um, but I think, you know, the things that I hear from students and that this is, you know, kind of exclusively through Uh, the history department, African-American studies, American studies, New England studies to some extent, is really about the lack of diversity in terms of uh, faculty Um, uh, and so that is about like faculty identities for sure but it's also about uh, faculty working in different uh, sort of content areas but then it's also about uh, the lack of diversity of the student population in terms of um, majors uh, in the history department, certainly, but also in, uh, in American studies and then uh, PhD you know, graduate students generally. And so because, and because the, those two things are so important in terms of student success or the possibilities for student success, I think those have been the things that students have identified as, um, as feeling like those are, those are lacking.
0: So I I really like that you mentioned how important the diversity of the faculty members is Uh, as an international student, as someone from Morocco. Like it's very hard to see someone that has the same path that I did. And I know like seeing someone that maybe went through the same things that I'm going through can be helpful. But um, I'm wondering if you can, for our listeners, just talk a little bit uh, about the impact that like, you know, the lack of diversity in faculty members and staff can have on students.
3: Great. Yeah, this is a big question. And I feel like I like, you know, this is a question that also touches on my own experiences as um, as a, a student of color, as a woman of color, as uh, as a traditional student. I mean, I sort of went back to graduate school um, and I was sort of in, you know, I had already had kind of a career as a um, as a uh, literacy educator as a as a a youth organizer and so so I was sort of non-traditionally aged I was first generation Um, so yeah I think the 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 thing that we call imposter syndrome right is one of the things that we could talk about in this uh category um and I think that's particularly something I mean I think this is true most PhD students most graduate students experience this thing we call imposter syndrome but I do think it's particularly true for for historically underrepresented students in higher ed. Um, I think, you know, when we go into uh, academic spaces, into the academy, and we already are unsure because of, right, all of our identities, um, and because we've been historically underrepresented in the academy, we're sort of unsure about whether or not um, we belong there. And I think, you know, as I said, the truth is that the institution, you know, that higher education was not made for us, so, and did not have us in mind when it, you know, was was built, and and really, you know, as they've kind of grown, so so we feel like we don't belong here. It's not because it's something that we are putting on ourselves, though. You know, I, I do think we all have those insecurities about whether or not we're smart enough, but I, I do think that many of us um, if we are from a uh, historically underrepresented groups um, I think we don't belong here actually and I think many there are many kind of practices policies interactions that we have with other students and with faculty that essentially say to us that we don't belong here and we and we have to spend a lot of time um, proving it so, but I think in terms of impact. Um, you know, I think the, the things that I've seen and then I think the, that the things that I've experienced are really things that are about um, sort of mental and physical health. And then I think, you know, um, consequentially, our ability to finish our, our program successfully. So I, th- I think those are kind of the biggest impacts, which, I, which is why having a community, a supportive community um, and, and supportive mentors is so incredibly important
1: you know one of my old mentors from undergrad i actually brought him to campus to give a talk about for hispanic heritage month his name is adam and he was discussing diversity and he actually received a grant to do research on the topic specifically why students keep falling out and they're not matriculating and they don't seem to want to go through with higher education in these fields particularly students of color or marginalized individuals And his argument was that it's a, um, what is it, a defense mechanism almost. Like As a person who has had the lived experience, when something becomes too aggressive or hostile of an environment, they are conditioned, people in this situation are conditioned to remove themselves from that environment and find a more hospitable environment. So that was another approach that I had heard that kind of reminded me of your answer just now. So, I mean, is there a case where maybe in an attempt to standardize things or make things fair, there's a sense of othering of the students who maybe don't fit that paradigm and and what could be some effects of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, what he, I think is describing is tra- a trauma-based approach, right? Like If you experience trauma, um, and I'm I'm sort of using the term trauma loosely, but if you experience a traumatic experience, if you if your undergraduate experience is filled with consistent microaggressions, racialized assaults against you in the classroom, outside of the classroom, you. you you wouldn't really be apt to then go back to that environment for another four, five, six years, right? So so I think he's he's correct in sort of hypothesizing a little bit of the reticence. I think also there's a reticence around um, t- to Khadija what you had talked about too, cost, right? So um, I think that there's a class piece of, um, particularly I think when we think about first generation um, folks, Um, there is a, I think sometimes there's a call from family, from sort of life to go into industry.
1: As an educator, as a historian, what do you think this impact of othering is having on PhD students?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is about climate and culture, but I think it's also about the sort of history of disciplinary formations. I mean, so all of our disciplines, no matter what discipline we're in, forms in the academy at a particular moment. I mean, in the U.S. context, that is the late 19th century, and, you know, I mean, I could spend a little bit of time talking about the conditions and characteristics of the late 19th century that speak to why, um, you know, all of these disciplinary formations really, you know, the kind of standard bearers for all of our disciplinary formations are essentially like, you know, straight white men um and and kind of the the kind of knowledge production that they did, partly because they were the only ones allowed or or they were the only ones whose knowledge production was valued um and so they what they produced came be, became the standards and so I think when I think the the you know the culture that you're talking about and the experiences of of feeling different and then also feeling um Unable to communicate what that experience is. Um, Yeah, I think this is partly about a kind of you know entrenched culture um, around a particular valuing of particular kinds of knowledge production, but I think value of particular kind of cultures and climates inside of departments, inside of particular disciplines and i think what is asked of us as sort of not you know non-traditional students in those spaces is to conform and to figure out how we can be more like those and i think one of the things that that began happening in the late 1960s when students across the country were really advocating for things like ethnic studies and black studies departments is a um, a demand to shift that to not only shift like the content of the curriculum, but also the culture and what's being valued in terms of um, in terms of the knowledge and kind of intel- intellectual culture and climate. So I think impact. Yeah, I mean this is this is there's a mental health impact, there's a physical health impact, and ultimately there is a whether or not we can be successful completing our programs. Um, so yeah, I think that the the that othering, you know, can happen like a microaggression. I mean, it could also be a macroaggression that is just about the way that a particular department or a particular discipline um decides really to continue the practices, policies and cultures that it that it's been doing for the last, you know, whatever 100 years or something.
0: Can you think of other ways that, you know, those intersectional identities can
3: also be limited in other ways. So I'm not sure that the identities themselves, um, the multiple or overlapping identities themselves are what is limiting. I mean, it is a, I think the, I think the only time that you know, identities generally are limiting is when they're thought to be and thought to be like by the person themselves or by other people um as um, particularly homogenous in some kind of part, you know, some kind of way kind of narrow. So you know, I'm not sure um, the it's the identity that that is the thing that's limiting. I mean, I think one of the lessons that the academy, but I think this is true for institutions kind of across our, our society. I think one of the things that institutions need to learn um, is about the the kind of history of contributions of uh, people who have historically been left out of these institutions, right, which does not mean that, that folks have not contributed to, to so much of the knowledge that is Um, produced and then promoted, but it's often that they did not get credit for it. They weren't named, right? They were some behind the scenes actor, some person in some service uh, capacity who ended up doing a lot of work, a lot of intellectual work, but then did not get any credit for it. So it's not like we don't have a history of folks who've made important contributions to all of these disciplinary formations. It's essentially that, that those folks were made invisible and erased from those histories. So I don't know that it's the identities that are uh, limiting, but it is, it's the construct of the institutions that then limit kind of how we understand um, sort of the multiplicity or the diversity of contributions.
1: There's an intersectional identity of, you know, woman, first generation, non-traditional student, all of these things, right? Just pick one. Let's go with non-traditional student. Now, personally, I'm also a non-traditional student. I have more, I have a lot of work experience that most people in the academic realm have no idea about and therefore treat me like I have no work experience in general. Why? Because they assume that most, if not all students went straight through through school, have never held a job, have never received like a W-2 or anything like that. And so there's a lot of assumptions made on that behalf. Or maybe people assume that you're not familiar with childcare. I mean, you name it, right? So your opinion might be diminished. Your point of view might not be listened to. Your uh feedback might not be sought. You know, there's a lot of reasons why I think um identities should be celebrated. And the only situation that I can think of where an identity might be limiting is if like you said, but also what if someone feels like their identity is superior? If you think that your identity is the best one out there, then you're not really leaving yourself open for all these different points of view that could enhance your field, right? I think most people of color and marginalized folks are looking at things through a different lens that isn't often understood. There's not a lot of grants that that request that information outright, at least not before. Now there Mm -hmm. might be, Mm -hmm. but I mean, what's your take on that in terms of, maybe just in the educational realm. Do you feel like people are
3: more interested in these in these identities now? You're absolutely right. And this is what I meant by like, this is the only ways in which identities are limiting is if they are narrowed. And I think, um, because I think the, the idea that your identity is um, superior uh, t- to me in my field translates to white supremacy and a long history of white supremacy. And it is particularly patriarchal. It's, it's male it's you know heterosexual it's a particular religious uh uh background so I think and it and and that fits into my category um I mean it's that's deeply dangerous um but I think it fits into my to what I said earlier about the only time that identities are limiting is if the person themselves thinks that somehow um it has a kind of narrow idea about that identity and I think white supremacy is a narrow idea about a particular identity now because it is entrenched in particular ways and has the backing of institutional power kind of across institutions in our society it's a big problem is what I will say in a very un- that's an understatement <laughs> I mean I could say more and and of course we're living in a moment of seeing how much of a big problem it really is Some yeah. many people seem to be seeing that it's a big problem now I don't know mm-hmm just like reminds me of like the work that the
0: BU Center for Anti-Racist Research is doing. They're working a lot and they're trying to see how policies are in place can be limiting or can create a lot of you know inequality especially for you know um, minorities and um, so I'm wondering when it comes to you know higher education how what kind of policies
3: do you think should be you know revised or looked at again? There's a lot of kind of um, rhetorical gesturing towards, uh, you know, sort of looking at some of these things to try to figure out how to kind of open up programs departments, you know, whatever. Um, and, I, you know, I'm really troubled by this, because I think for at least as long as I have been alive, really, um, but it, certainly as long as I've been in the academy. Um, and certainly since the late 1960s, when there was all of this student activism around creating and around really pushing universities to open up admissions, admissions criteria, right? All of that stuff happening in the late 60s and early 70s. There is also a history of rolling those things back. I don't know that we need any more investigations, but I feel like we have a lot of really, really good data already. And we could really make some actual changes based on, the data we have, we really don't need any more task forces or committees or investigations. I feel like we have a lot of data to your point about what's what's happening at the Center for Anti-Racist Research. We have a lot of data. Like now we need to actually do something with that data. But then I think the other piece of it is is the rollback. So I think changes do get made, but I think you know, I do think there is a lot of investment in universities looking a certain way and, and, and even for uh, university leadership who says otherwise, you know, they often are not interrogating um, who's in those leadership positions, right? But I do think sometimes it is um, a lack of real commitment to see um, an institution look different than it has looked forever. And you know, I, I think we're we're seeing that nationally in our country right now. I mean, it, it is what all of the sort of white rage is about right now. I mean, it is about a um, a, a a shift that I think has been happening for the last at least two decades um, in what the country looks like, who's in leadership positions in the country, and you know, and I think that what we're experiencing is the kind of very open uh, backlash to that. But I think that happens in quiet ways in the university.
1: I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about intersectional identities in terms of in terms of expectations of success. Mm-hmm. So if we can kind of talk a little bit about siloing personalities, emphasizing the ones that we feel like are preferred mm-hmm. by our fields of choice, maybe knowing that certain identities that we hold will gain more resources than others. And so we kind of put those at the forefront. Mm
3: -hmm. What kinds of impact do you think that has on students? I think the institution does ask us to not be our full selves, right? Because our full selves you know, have historically not been in this space. And so even if the university doesn't mean to, although in most cases I believe the university does mean to, even if the university doesn't mean to, they, it is asking us to kind of be, you know, to, to quiet part of ourselves. You know, and for some of us, we can't, because we physically don't look like most of who is on our, our campus, especially at, at predominantly white institutions, right? How do we physically sign, you know, quiet? that part. I think a person needs to
1: have the intention of siloing even temporarily kind of like code switching Mm -hmm. um, while on the academic setting but then what happens is you code switch long enough you lose that part of yourself I think over time.
3: I think code switching is different than a kind of shutting down of um, a part of you and I'm thinking about some um, senior faculty that I've known in, in my history, um, who, you know, definitely um, you know, in my first in my first uh jobs as junior faculty, you know, definitely were like, you know, you you should just, you know, sort of wait until you get tenure. And they weren't code switching. They actually had kind of shut down a part of themselves in order to um to to essentially be quiet, to not make a lot of waves and to kind of move through. It was their way to navigate the university. Um, and really, and for them at the time that they were in the institutions that they were in to navigate a hostile department, a hostile university. Um, and so they did that. I think they did it was a self-protective measure, but you're absolutely right. They formed a habit. Um, and and when it when it was possible, you know, when they did get tenure and it was possible. To kind of say all the things that they had not said, it was actually incredibly stressful for them to then do this thing, this advocacy thing that they said they were going to do once they had gotten tenure. Um, and so, I do think it it t- for for faculty, for junior faculty, I think, um, uh, yeah, there's a decision that one has to make about whether or not we're going to let the university tell us what our value is right and we have to kind of be very clear and have a supportive community that is inclusive of both peers but also uh mentors who um who are able to reinforce that understanding of what our value is in order to help us navigate um navigate the university because i do because i think code switching is different it is much more um empowered a process and a practice than this other thing that I've seen where um where there's a part of you that's shut down and I will for my I mean my experience going into my PhD program because I went in and it was, you know I had had kind of the beginnings of a career a very different career where I had you know to your point of you know a lot of other skills um that I had used in my other job and I did try to shut that part down. I didn't really talk about that with, the, with my cohort. Um, and I tried to do this thing where I was just going to like absorb, you know, all of the stuff in my program and kind of shut off that other part. And I soon realized that part of what, that, that part of what, part of why I was doing that was because I was not valuing those things that I was bringing, and that somehow I had allowed, like I was believing that those things were not valued in this space, and that the, you know I shouldn't bring those things with me. Um, and it really took having um, uh, an advisor that I eventually began working with to stop doing that, which I think changed, had a huge impact on my ability to endure the rest of the program. Um, so I think, I, that's the I think that's the difference I would I would say. I think code switching and absolutely that's an important skill. Um, but that's um, much a much more empowered practice that it that we do um, versus this other thing that is about shutting down a part of ourselves with the idea that it's not valuable and that it needs to be invisible because what because of the impact. It's going to have on you know, our professors or our uh, the pe- the other people in our cohort. We don't want them to feel uncomfortable about this, you know, about being this other person.
2: I think that that's a good question. I think there's a duality to academia that we have to reconcile because we have to name through identity that we don't serve, we marginalize, we oppress, individuals because of components of their intersectional identities. um, While we also have to not always name to those students that the reason that they're here is those identities or that the value that they bring to our department is those identities, right? So it's like we have to talk about it but not talk about it in this very strange way. Um, And I think I always struggle with this piece that is we have to center stories and experiences, but that sometimes feels like trauma porn, for lack of a better term, of like, if the only reason that I'm being asked to sit on this panel is to talk about how hard it is to be Black, I don't wanna sit on your panel, because I actually really love being Black, and I think that it's amazing, and I wouldn't wanna be anything else but a Black woman in my life, right? So um, I remember this summer I was doing, you know talks and things and and I would really talk about to people that in investigating someone's experience and the components of their experience that are hard is is important and necessary and I would say the same for programs to investigate the experiences that students with intersectional identities have that is hard and difficult is is critical to to change happening but also investigate the parts of their experiences that make them proud and that serve them in ways that affirm and uplift them. And what you do with those parts is you find space that they can continue to flourish in those. So whether that's creating clubs, conversations, finding, connecting them to faculty outside of the department, because you, you might have not, you might not have any in your department, but connecting them to folks who have. Similar experiences or backgrounds or understanding, so that they can sort of find that mentorship, can find um, those spaces of of authenticity. I think is important. Um, and, and so I I always worry if we're only focusing on the bad. Um, the other thing I think is thinking about how, and for it, and it is not possible for every single experience. But Khadija, you talked about being North African and the, the components of your identity that are important to you for that. I think if I was a faculty member of yours, I would ask you about how can you, if that's something that's important for you to learn more about, how can we find places in the curriculum where you can continue to learn about that, where you can uplift those components of your identity if that's something you want to do right so i think it's 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 naming someone's experience and the, the the layers and the complicatedness of of having an intersectional identity but not resting on my girl can you come on this panel and talk to me how about how hard it is to be here because you're the only one and actually and i think we laugh when we think about that because I'm asking you to sort of talk about how hard it is to be the only or one of the few me as a maybe a faculty member who could have some capacity to change that right so so it's, it's the doing piece I think that that's really important too. Um, it's. I think we're beyond listening now I think we've sort of the game. Has been exhausted around the listening and this is not me saying that listening is not important because I think it's absolutely important to hear people's experiences to find the, to affirm them to find them valid and important but I think we get lazy because all we do is listen we don't take anything from it we don't do anything with it and so I think that departments have to be in the business of the doing now more um, that can be programming that can be hiring diverse faculty that can be diversifying the curriculum in a way that lends itself to thinkers that look different um, than the traditional canon of thinkers that are sort of centered. Um, I think it could be finding opportunities to uplift PhD students in terms of um, spaces of support, um, connections, Funding, again, whether it's funding for um, being in the academic environment, it could be funding to go to conferences that are off the beaten trail of what is normally supported. So, you know, maybe it's a conference on identity um, that isn't sort of specific to um, the topic or the, the department at hand. And I say all of this to say that a lot of this is resource dependent and not every department has all of the resources and all of the funding, but a lot of departments have a lot of creative people that can think creatively and collaboratively about how we make it happen and so. um, So I and and I think the other thing I think that is really important is, and this is um, tricky so i'm going to name it this is tricky but as much as PhD students can find ways to find their voice. And I think we saw a little bit of that this summer with some, um, I I saw some STEM departments that were sort of coalescing around um, naming, the marginalizing and the oppressing experiences that happen, um, naming that like shifts need to happen in the canon of, um, of curricula so i think that we, that as much as is possible without sort of losing um funding or it's tricky right because there there are these power differentials that i don't want to not name that are there but finding places and spaces to find voice and to name even if it is in a in a meeting with a with a faculty member to say you know my experience looks different from my white counterparts in these ways um sometimes that's not going to be heard unfortunately but the more that you say it um i i I like to tell folks in um trainings that i do the more that you say stuff even the first few times you say it your voice is shaking you're terrified you build that muscle it becomes um a little more natural even if it's still terrifying to name your truth and i think that that's a piece that. I always worry about with PhD students because there's so much to lose and, and that is real. But to be able to live and speak the truth that you are experiencing is critical um, and so important. Um, so when you can take those calculated risks to sort of speak up or to just name something feeling different for you than it is for someone else, I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you for, you know, saying all of that. And I think one thing that resonated with me is, uh, you know, being called to be on a panel just because of your identity. Like I've had so many instances where I was like, oh, you're Moroccan. Can you tell us how it is to be, you know, Muslim woman, or can you tell us, you know, this thing and i'm like i don't have the knowledge i don't have like just because i'm from there does not mean i can be a spokesperson for that whole community you know so it's like this awkward moment where you're asked to do something i do want to you know provide information i do want to help so like no one has to go through the same experience that i went through but at the same time like it's like a burden that you're being put through you know what advice would you give to uh you know faculty or staff member in higher education on ways to disrupt all of these inequalities and to make the experience for PhD students a good experience.
2: Yeah, I, <clears throat> I have a couple of thoughts about that. I think um, doing the work of reading books, research, um, podcasts, um, t- to really, to do your own self-education um, around your limitations in Knowledge and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion I think is 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 critical. I can name a few times that just, especially in my PhD experience, just someone saying, and really actually like, and usually it was my, um, my advisor who was the chair for my dissertation. She would just say, how are you? It's a radical question, right? I think that we're taught to as, I think as women, I think sometimes as women of color, I know as a black woman, we're taught to sort of just be like, I'm good. I, you know, I got all this stuff going on, but I'm good. I'm managing. <clears throat> but there was something about whenever she asked me, I would be like, I don't know. <laughs> I did my PhD um and I worked full-time. So it was a lot, right? So um, so you know, inquisitively and in and, and and um authentically uh engaging in Asking um, a student how they're doing and really listening to what the answer is Um, and not always feeling like you have to provide a resource or um, advice, I think most times, I am always um, trying to, my husband is always like, I'm not looking for advice sometimes, I just want you to listen. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, just read me right there. So sometimes what it is, is someone just needs to, the space um, and the permission to just sort of name that like, this is not okay. Or I've just got all of these things on my plate and I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not really sure. So I think that that's an important piece of, you um, of support is just asking and listening, um, and then sometimes providing you know some advice and other times just saying i'm 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 thinking of you, and this must be really difficult, but I'm thinking of you."
1: So both with graduate students and with faculty and staff, I've, I've had feedback given to me from individuals who are on those committees that say they're having a hard time, not just matriculating, but retaining, mm-hmm. mostly with the matriculation though, which is the biggest hurdle when you don't see a well diverse community right. around yeah. you when you're at your interview. Right. So I was wondering if you had any feedback for those people who are trying to right the ship, but yeah. are having a really hard time getting yeah. people of color in the door. Yeah.
3: This is my earlier point about, is, the do- is what's inside the door ready? And, and I actually don't think so, which is why people are not able to be retained. Because I don't know, I have not, and I, it's true, I haven't worked at a lot of universities, but I have not, I haven't heard any university lay out a retention plan. I've not seen that. What I know is that they've done, they have recruitment plans, both for students and for faculty. I have never and maybe for staff too, I think they're like administrative leader administrative leadership. They do they have recruitment um plans, but I've never seen a retention plan. So what does the retention plan look like? And I think, you know, for most of us, the honeymoon is over relatively quick. I mean, at my when I was at my last university, I think the honeymoon was over within the first week of the new semester. Like really crazy stuff happened where that that kind of um, illuminated kind of who my my colleagues were, what some of the policies were at the university around um, issues of uh, of of um, you know of sort of racist incidents that happened in the classroom, and so you know the bloom goes off the rose real quick, and then but I don't know that there but there's nothing in place to kind of I'm not saying the bloom needs to stay on the rose. But I am saying that I've never seen a retention program, uh, a deliberate intentional retention program. I've seen individuals work really hard to retain themselves, both students and faculty and and administrative um, leadership, that they've worked really hard to retain themselves because there's something there um, in that job, in that program, right, that they, that they want to they want to they want to be there, but they've had to work to do it themselves. They've had to put communities together to keep them there.
0: So I was wondering from your experience, what policies or like how can policies impact or influence the transition from being a PhD student to, you know, going into a career later on?
3: So yeah, so I think one of the things that would be really helpful is um and this is absolutely about diversifying and adding kind of new blood to, um, you know, to departments because people who are who are just coming out of graduate school now understand the field, not only the kind of career piece of the field, but the content of the field in a very different way. And I think um, being trained as a graduate student under folks who have a different, experience and understanding of the field and of the career possibilities in the field um, is an incredibly important thing given that most universities are actually not hiring full-time tenure track faculty so and this is about this speaks to like the diversity piece of, um, of diversifying the academy because i think that actually would help
2: so i i was thinking about this in terms of um the the policies that thwart successful graduation, and it's not necessarily that, but I um, I I think it was in my third year of my my doctoral program, I took a critical race theory class, and it like blew my mind. Um, I I wasn't sort of familiar with the theory. I ended up using that theory for my um, my dissertation, sort of my research, uh, my theoretical understanding. And the woman who taught the class, um, her name was Lee and she's a woman of color. And I remember I was, I loved the class. I enjoyed going to the class. We had a great rapport relationship and I sent her one of my, um, a project or something and then she sent back the grade. And in it, I remember she wrote, um, she was like, I don't think you realize how brilliant you are but it's been a joy to watch you. And, there was this two things happened first i was like oh second i was like really and i think that there's an interesting and i still have the email i it's saved but i think that there's an interesting piece around sort of like what thwarts is is that um that imposter syndrome the other piece i think that that was so powerful was that it would this was a woman of color and i can count on my hands how many women of color I've had in undergraduate, and then into graduate, and then into PhD experience. And I, I, it, it's less than five, or it's like five, right? It's, it's like on one hand. And the power of hearing that from her and sort of the belief that she had in me as a student, was so important and 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 i found myself going back to that email it's like when you get like a nice text from like someone you like and then you go back and you read it over and over and it makes you feel good every time you read it the the power so I, i was just thinking about the power of the voice the power of um building up a student and the importance of doing that and how so often back to sort of the questions about like that pipeline and the sort of why students aren't coming in or why they're leaving. I, I would wonder how much support in terms of the buildup and the lift up do PhD students with intersectional identities get and who they're getting that from? You know, the academy sometimes is really quick to try to make folks that don't look like the majority feel like they have to acquiesce or shift or change their language, their voice, their understandings, their dress to fit and to 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 students as much as um, you can, I say, move affirmatively into those spaces authentically as you um, and to challenge and find ways to challenge, and even if that's to have conversations or send emails <laughs> to to question spaces that are telling you that you have to shift um, in ways to dim your light or um, take away from who you authentically are. Um, and I think that we get better as an organization and as an in, like a higher education institution, the more that we own that we're more traditional than we think that we are, or we like to say that we are, and then unpack that and dismantle those traditions and systems to, to make more space. Um, and I think things like this, I think this is an opportunity in terms of um, a space that I think there will be PhD students who hear, or graduate students who hear this and we will say, "Okay, I can do it." Or they hear, you know, the arsenal of your um, invited guests, and it gives them the language um, and the tools to start to think about things a little differently. So I think this is a part of it as well. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you both. Um, it was good to meet you. Yeah.
2: You're so welcome. It was wonderful to meet you.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Vitamin PhD. To get the latest episodes of Vitamin PhD, be sure to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and you can also connect with us on Twitter at BUVitaminPhD. Learn more about our team and send us your feedback by visiting our website, bu.edu
3: vitaminphd. See you next time!